The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, right. record. And we're live. It's time it is 5.02 p.m. We are two minutes late because of a technical difficulty, and it's amazing that we only had one. It is Wednesday, May 4th, 2022, and uh, look, I mean, if you've ever doubted that In Lieu of Fun is put together on the fly with no staff, with no support by to total incompetence um let this show uh 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 derail that i'm going to tell you the story of how this show came to be uh i was sitting yesterday evening having just picked up sophia near dallas airport where she was is staying while she's escaped from china which we're going to talk about in a moment um and we went out to dinner and we're sitting drinking scotch because that's what we do and because she's a woman of taste and refinement and judgment and all of a sudden i noticed that i had a a text message from kate that said i'll do the show tomorrow because this is wednesday normally gdf does the show today but gdf is moving today so she doesn't do the show today so and i'm done with teaching and kate's done with teaching so she's like rearing to do all kinds of shows that no one's ever done before and so she texts me and she says, I'll do the show. And then the next text is, we need a guest. And I look up and there's like half my text messages to Ben. <laughs> and, and I said, you want to be a guest on In Little Fun tomorrow? And Sophia said something like, something really uh, smart, like, uh, uh, sure. Um, and so here she is. And but just, just because Sophia never underperforms, she is not here by herself. She is here with Laura, <laughs> who uh, has also, uh, like, when did you come into the country, Laura? Oh, 10 days ago. Oh, so you've been here for a while. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. About twice the time Sophia has been here. But so. <laughs> yeah, so so we have two guests um, uh, in from, uh, uh, from Beijing. Um, and... Um, uh, Sophia is, of course, for those of you who've never met her, she is, of course, a, a, a journalist in uh, in Beijing uh, for The Telegraph. Uh, she has also well known to the entire Lawfare extended cinematic universe as the pianist for the Lawfare podcast. I had to like, go back theory. and forth a number of times to make sure that it was the same person that I found on the internet that was this very great journalist. <laughs> and then the same, and I was like, this would be terrible if it was like a different Sophia. But like, you have very prolific profiles in both capacities on the internets, just FYI. Well, <laughs> Sophia is, is the prototypical um, Oberlin College Conservatory double degree student. Oh. Um, 
She uh, that this, uh, there we Sophia go. Sophia is completely baffling to people who didn't go to Oberlin College, but Oberlin <laughs> has a program in which you can do a performance degree at the conservatory while also doing a college degree at Oberlin College, and it takes five years, and only truly nutsoid people like Jeremy Dank do it. Um, except that Sophia does it, did it. And so she showed up at our house one day when she, were you a junior or a senior winter yeah. term? Baby, total baby. Uh, yeah. And she was interning for Time Magazine and getting ready for her recital. And so, you know, that's <laughs> just always like, you know, that was probably 15 years ago or something. So Sophia, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the United States. Uh, Let's start with uh, uh, how long you have been hunkered down in, uh, in China uh, under COVID. I have not been home to the U.S. in two and a half years, so since pre-pandemic, since late 2019. <gasps> yeah, that's the right reaction. Can you, just, can you just make, can I just make sure that like that was not by choice? Was that not by choice? It was a mix of factors. Uh, first, COVID, you know, everybody was hunkering down in the world, uh, but then also even as China started to lift visa restrictions and, and some travel rules, uh, they did not impact journalists, foreign journalists. So I, I couldn't leave actually for a while. If I left, my visa basically would have been canceled. I wouldn't have been able to go back. Uh, and it's a great story to cover, but of course, like everybody needs a break at some point. So that's why I'm here back in the States. So two and a half years. I was years looking at your Twitter time. feed. And oh, yeah. I, I love, I love a good, I love a good, oh my God the differences between American supermarkets and every other type of supermarket in the world take. This is one of my favorite things to do the second that I'm in a foreign country is to go to their grocery stores and go shopping. It's just a joy. But anyway, sorry, I digress. I didn't mean to like take over this conversation so quickly. I was just kind of compliment you on the, I was <laughs> enjoy, I enjoyed that a great deal. You have a very good Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah, I've been tweeting about my re-entry into the U.S. Yeah. A lot has happened, obviously, right in the last couple of years. So it has been very interesting to come back. I'm still I'm yeah, still so taking the pulse, trying to get a sense of what it feels like. So what is the difference between the pulse of Washington under COVID and Beijing under COVID? How are uh, compare and contrast? Mm. Well, to a certain extent... A I mean, tale of two capitals. Yeah, I mean, really, the things are really oh, getting that's back a good to normal point. here. Sort of, it kind of seems like masks. People, some people wear them, some people don't. You know, in China, it's still uh, really a thing. But you have to remember that in China, before masks were always a thing because of pollution. So a lot of people are used to wearing face coverings for the air. Um, <clears throat> but then, of course, with COVID, it just became so ubiquitous. Everybody wearing them all the time. But the one big difference is that. China's still dealing with COVID in the same way that it was back in 2020. You know, lockdowns, very strict lockdowns, quarantining people, contact tracing. I mean, this is a, a system that they fine-tuned after the initial outbreak in Wuhan. And they have continued to use the same playbook time and time again over these last almost three years now in the pandemic. And so what you see happen is there's one case and then this entire housing compound will get shut down. And the idea is that they're trying to contain the virus, these cases and the infections where they are to try to keep it from spreading, but it's a virus. It's really difficult to contain. And now they're dealing with Omicron just as other countries have dealt with it. And, and while many other nations around the world seem to just, you know, they're starting to think about how to live with this. This is the new normal. China's still trying really hard to contain this bug. And it, they're really reaching the limits of what they're able to do. 
Can I, oh, go ahead, Ben. Oh, go I was going to, I was going to ask like, um, right before, um, spring break in 2020, right before it hit the U S I was teaching information privacy. So this is February, 2020. And I, uh, showed a video that had been going viral in the United States. That was of a drone yelling at people in Chinese to go back inside their homes. Don't you know that we're on lockdown? You can't, I mean, these were and like, I couldn't tell whether this was semi like like satirical and it had been like it crossed like language boundaries that had been like misunderstood, but generally it was understood to be this very strict kind of thing. And then the next year I was teaching info privacy when there had been a year of pandemic and there were a number of, and I was teaching at a different school and there was a number of students from Hong Kong and China and in the class remotely. Um, and it was a US based class. Um, and there was, we just had a very, there was a very long conversation for one of my classes, just kind of about the normalcy of safety versus liberty. And I mean, which is a you know, pretty common balancing point between these two. I'm just kind of wondering at this point, given everything that's happened, is there a pushback on the surveillance and the hyper safety, like kind of correction? I've been hearing at least in the foreign media that there is just like a ton of like, or at least in the media in the US that like there is people are upset about these like constant lockdowns. Um, is it going to do you think it's going to have any type of effect in the authoritarian state like at all or like outside of COVID? Or do you think that this is like isolated to COVID? So it's been interesting, this la latest round of lockdowns, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about the lockdowns in Shanghai. And this has been the way China's dealt with COVID all this time. But something really different, I think, is happening now. I mean, for the first time in this latest round, I started to hear sort of your average person start to complain about it because they don't necessarily see an end to all of this. You know, this idea that there are these um, really sudden changes to your life that could come at any moment. And now it's maybe not the best response, right? That's what people are starting to wonder and think because actually the case numbers were going up. And they were happy with the lockdowns when it seemed to be successful. And, and to be fair, you know, it really was like China did manage to control many new subsequent outbreaks uh, in ways that other nations weren't able to do for different reasons. But this time around has been very, very interesting because I do think people are, are starting to get pretty upset as to why, you know, year three now. I mean, China's lived this pandemic longer than anybody else. Yeah. And so people are starting to really wonder, like, how much longer do we have to deal with this? What does this really mean? Um, you know, and it's sometimes a little bit glitchy. These little there are these uh, contact tracing apps that you have to use, these mobile apps. So you scan a QR code in Beijing to enter a public place. And then it basically has a digital footprint of everywhere you've been. So this can be used for lots of reasons, right? For for good things, for bad things. I mean, there are stories even of human rights lawyers where their codes, um, their health code changes to red. Red means you should be, you know, that you're sick, basically, that you should be quarantined um, before they go into court to defend clients. You know, there are lots of things like this where that sort of information could be used possibly in not the best of ways. It is the slippery, I mean, it is the slippery slope. It is the, it is the, it is the quintessential balancing test between surveillance and safety and liberty and kind of, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't know, like freedom of expression, freedom, just generally, I think that this is like, do you think that like COVID is going, but do you think that that pushback is going to have any type of long-term ramifications on China's kind of how they balance that in general as a society that generally prefers like safety to 
to like yeah. to liberate, or at least is like has acquiesced to it. I don't know. Yeah. You know, usually when this kind of thing happens in China, the government really responds with even a, a stronger hand. So there's no loosening of restrictions, but actually even more of them because they're because they're of course concerned about instability, social and political instability, and because there are people who are upset. I mean, there there have been protests in Shanghai within housing compounds, for instance, people just really upset with the way things were handled, not even able to get basic life necessities and enough food in their homes. Um, and because that has happened, and, and of course, these videos, when they show up on social media, are censored right away. The government doesn't want the public to see that. Um, but the only way to respond for Beijing oftentimes is to control even more. And this year, I, I, I have to say, it is more likely that they will do that because it's a banner year for China. In July, we hit the 25th anniversary of the handover from Hong Kong, from the British Empire over to Beijing. In the fall, we have something called the 20th Party Congress. This is a twice in a decade massive political meeting. This is the moment where leader Xi Jinping is expected to stay on for this unprecedented third term. So this is a time when China needs to make sure that everything's okay. Everything's running smoothly, no bumps in the road. But of course, there are all the bumps in the road right now. So they're going to most likely respond actually with more restrictions rather than less. And COVID's a great excuse really to handle a, a whole host of problems that aren't related to public health. Yeah, I mean, we're one month away, I think today from the Tiananmen Square massacre anniversary too. Um, there's like, a, there's, um, I will thank, thank John Shea, my partner for putting that in our, in our personal holiday calendar. <laughs> like, so I can never forget it. Um, but, uh, but I think that there, yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm just really curious. I think that you're, I mean, I'm not surprised by what you say. I'm a little bit disappointed. I don't know. There's just, it's, um, it does seem to be a, a strong kind of the, um, the, the Overton window on surveillance that has had the, the public safety excuse, public health and safety excuse is just scary to think about whether or not that ratchet can ever get turned back, especially by an authoritarian kind of regime. So yeah. Um, but Ben, sorry, I have like talked for a bunch. I just, had a ton of questions. Um, Don't worry. I was, yeah. I actually want to follow up on one and then I want to introduce our other guest. Yeah. So Fia, you were telling me yesterday about what uh, sort of the mechanics of getting around Beijing in COVID and the degree to which, you know, the degree to which the surveillance state actually, uh, you can't avoid it. So walk us through that. How does that work? Uh, what do you have to do in order to go where? Every place you go that's in a public area, you have to scan a QR code. So it, there's a, it's called the Health Kit, and it's just an app that you, it's linked to actually a social media app. So you open it up in WeChat and you can scan this QR code everywhere you go. So every time you get into a taxi or you want to enter the park, you're going to a restaurant, you're going out to the bar, um, everything, everything you do. So you're meant to scan this and that basically clocks you where you've been uh, at what time. And if there's a case, if a, someone tests positive later on, then that's the data that gets used to find who may have been in the vicinity. And then those are the people who then get um, tracked down and quarantined at home. They get tested, they, they might quarantine at home, they might be sent off to a hospital, depends on the situation and what your test results say. And it's very, it's pretty tight, you know. I have a friend who, he went into a hotel to ask for directions. He was only in there for a minute or two, but then later was found through all this contact tracing and had to quarantine at home because there was a, an event, a wedding 
uh, at that same hotel in in those few days that he was there and a photographer for that wedding later tested positive and so everybody everybody who had gone through that hotel was found and and quarantined somehow dealt with you know tested dealt with uh, maybe to isolate at home or sent out to a, a hospital and this is how china just deals with it and uh, you know technically it it is against the law technically to not scan this code basically i mean this is part of their covid measures and there have been stories of people trying to skirt quarantines and whatnot like, and so how many times to- a day are you <laughs> scanning your qr code i mean is this something that like basically every time you go between buildings what what I also, does it work better than it works in the US? Because it is super annoying for me to even get it to scan at like now the like the hot new thing. I know they've always had QR codes for a lot longer in like in China, but they're reaching more ubiquity in the US now after COVID because of menus and stuff at restaurants. And like, they're annoying. Like they're super annoying. Um, I don't know if they work better um, in Beijing to be doing it this often, but like, it's just really sloppy. Yeah, it's sometimes if the connectivity is not great, it's hard to scan. And if the the most trouble I have is actually in a taxi at night because then it's dark and you have to turn on the light and try to get a, a light on your phone so you can actually scan the code. Um, so it can be a bit of a pain. And if you lose for whatever reason service for a second, then it's it can take longer. But usually connectivity in China is pretty good. But you know, there's a big question: where does all that data go? I'm, I'm not really sure. Well, wait, you this. didn't answer my question. Like, how yeah. often? Oh, are how you many doing? times are you doing this? Okay, twice let's a day, see. Are you doing it a hundred times <laughs> so, a day? Uh, many, definitely more than twice a day. So, like, let's say, okay, regular day, wake up, um, maybe go for a run, leave my compound, go to my office. I have to scan to get into the office complex. If I want to go to the cafe, get a cup of coffee or get a sandwich, I have to scan again in the shop to re-enter the. And it's not the shop account. that's taking the scan, right? It's it's the the government or the party. Yeah. Yeah, so the government's collecting this data. Um, it's it's actually really unclear to me where it goes. I presumably it goes um, to what would be the public sec- to the police, the public security bureau, um, and then also higher levels of government. I'm sure could access it if they wanted to. Uh, I'm it, unclear to me also how real time that information is, but it's all there because they can go back and find it, and we know that because that's how they find people to quarantine later if they think you have been a close contact. Um, so the QR codes businesses, any sort of public space are required to have it so that when visitors come, you have to scan it. And there are always people, like if you go to parks, there are guards, well, of course, uh, as usual at the entrance, but they'll always tell you to scan the code, um, also to take your temperature on these little stands with the little scanner. Um, but often a, a feature that you find everywhere in China is that they have these announcements on loop. So there's a megaphone that will be wired onto the gate and it just it just keeps going it's like scan the qr code take your temperature wear a mask do the thing you know it's like just on on loop on and on and on and on uh everywhere you see this in china so the one of the parts so, i go to so most on, in Beijing on, on average that. on an average day what are you what's the range what's the minimum you'll scan if you if you don't spend the day in bed um and what's the maximum you'll scan I guess at least a dozen times a day, if not more. You know, you think about what you do in a, in a day, right? If you're going to the office, you go to the grocery store, maybe go to lunch, you know, go with Laura to, to get a drink at the bar, you know, like every time you go, and, and all the times you're getting in a taxi, right? Or taking public transport or what whatnot, like getting around also requires the scan. So, you know, I've never counted. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Your life revolves around your phone in China. I mean, everything so, is, is, and is, is that. Done. 
Is that all over the country or just in major cities? So I mean, if you is, live in the countryside. There is some version of this kind of contact tracing everywhere, but it seems to be the most um, strictly implemented in Beijing. You know, Shanghai has something similar, but it wasn't as rigorously enforced as far as I could tell anecdotally uh, from the times I've been there and from friends who live there and, and people I talk to. Um, so it really varies. And I guess in Beijing, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's just become like a fact of life. But can I, can I push back on that? Which is like, and maybe this is like a fundamental kind of cultural difference or I don't know, like whatever, but do people ever talk about it being annoying, like, and completely onerous and where is our data going and like, what is happening and this kind of terrifying, like, or is that like, I don't know. It, I mean, like, is there pushback on it or do people just, is it just like you, this is the life you live if you're in China, which is that you understand that the state has this power over you and will enforce it. What's really interesting is that right before COVID, there was more of a robust discussion about consumer data privacy. Actually, there was more movement around thinking what, thinking about what that means, um, how to protect the information that people are sending out. But then COVID came, and the government's take on this is that this is necessary in the name of public health for protecting the lives of this nation of 1.4 billion people. And for the majority of the country, a lot of people do believe that they buy that. You know, they they think that this is what is needed because that's what the government's told them. And again. Up until very recently, it has pretty much worked to help deal with keeping case uh, case numbers down and also keeping deaths at a minimum. Um, but now maybe that's not necessarily the case anymore. Uh, some people grumble about it a little bit because it's it's really what we say mafan, which is like kind of a bit of a pain. You know, you have to like get your phone out, scan the thing, and you have to open one app, open another app, scan the thing, wait for it to show up. I mean, it just is like a little bit of a nuisance sometimes. Uh, but most people do it, and it's it's in a sense, um, you know, a lot of people talk about this in the sense that it is an authoritarian government that people have to listen to what they're being told. Um, but it's less so, I think, of a political system issue. It's just that people there are sort of used to always listening to what they've been told to do. They're used to following the rules. They've never had an option to not really follow the rules. And of course, there are exceptions to the rule. There are people who try to push the envelope in their own ways at different times, but the majority of the population is used to doing what they're told. So there's not always that much pushback. So we're not ready to go to audience questions yet, but uh, Itamar has a question that is directly on point. So I thought I would uh, interfere with the usual process to uh, 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 keep the conversation on this theme. Itamar, the floor is yours. Yeah, so I just wanted to know, well, what do people who don't have smartphones do? I guess you kind of touched on it saying that in Beijing it's stricter and maybe in other places it's less strict. So basically everyone now has a smartphone. Um, the, your life really revolves around your phone in China, everything. The, there's the contact tracing, but digital wallets and digital payments um, have been around for years. E everything, literally, you hail a cab, you order your food, you use the maps uh, map function to find directions. So everyone basically has a smartphone. What was interesting to see, especially in the early days of COVID was the elderly. The, they might have a smartphone, but just as they often are in other countries, they don't always know how to use it. And so there was this whole swath of society that was really struggling with how to live life in general in modern China. I mean, this is now a place where you're buying rail tickets, you know, you're doing everything on your phone, online, ordering for delivery, you know, all of this. Um, but then all of a sudden with COVID, it became a real issue for them. And so there have been cases of senior citizens who have had a lot more trouble figuring out how to make this work. Um, I did a really fun story about these 
digital literacy classes that the elderly could take so that they could function in this way. So basically now everyone has one, but yeah, there, there's still a swath of the population that struggles a bit. All right, so we are gonna shift gears here uh, and bring in our other guest, uh, Lara uh, von Mecha. Did I get that Almost. reasonably right? Reasonably right, yes. Try to get into the back of the throat for the Dutch G. Yeah, the Dutch G is, <laughs> I can't do it. I just can't do it. Um, uh, so Lara, you uh, were at my house when I showed up, uh, came home from work today with Sophia. Yes. Um, you uh, are uh, are currently with the Dutch Embassy in uh, in Beijing or formerly with the Dutch Embassy? Formerly, as of three days ago, I am officially unemployed and uh, living as an immigrant in the U.S., so I know you guys like that. Um, but before that... <laughs> <laughs> We're like a lot cooler with it if you're from. Yeah, that's <laughs> a problem with Dutch immigrants. <laughs> yeah, we like we like we're especially the yuppies. We're like we all love our like modern like our mid-century modern furniture and our Dutch that's design. Danish. And wait, oh wait, did I fuck it up? Yeah, is it Danish? I, okay, yeah, Scandinavian. So mid-century modern in okay. Denmark, but that's okay. It's okay. They're similar. It's okay. Um. Yeah. But before that, I was the press officer at the Dutch Embassy in Beijing. So how do you come to be go from being the press officer at the Beijing uh, Dutch Embassy to being unemployed in Washington <laughs> within two weeks? Um, that yeah. just seems like a big career change. <laughs> it is. Well, my, my partner, he moved to work uh, at Dutch representation to the UN. And he's been there for... Uh, I think last summer he started, so not eight months ago. So we did long distance for eight months. And then, you know, it was time after the Olympics for me to come here to try to see if I could still salvage the relationship after so much time. But it's been going very well for 10 days. And uh, I've been meaning to make a career switch. I didn't want to stay in diplomacy. So um, you're in, uh, so you've been in New York until today. And, yes. now, and now you're, uh, came to Washington and came directly to my house. Yes. That's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> Sophia said you'd be here, which is fine. <laughs> and, and, and I, uh, but you know, this is the most I've learned about you. And I mean, I, I, I knew your name oh, was- sorry, did I disappoint you? No, 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 it's super interesting. I'm happy to learn this uh, on In Lieu of Fun. Um, uh, and uh, so how long were you with the Dutch embassy? I have so many uh, 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 diplomatic questions about Dutch-Chinese relations. Uh, uh, that's actually a serious point. Um, uh, 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 how, um, like, how long were you there on, on behalf in, of the Netherlands? In to oh, in behalf of the Netherlands, I've been there for two and a half, going on three years. So I, I started a couple of months before COVID. Uh, broke out, so I had four or five months of normalcy, and then uh, we heard some whispers of this other respiratory virus somewhere in Wuhan, second SARS or whatever. And you know, uh, within minutes, we were skilled back, uh, sent back to the Netherlands, and tried for a half year to get back in, which eventually uh, we managed in uh, June. Uh, by what time the by which time the world had completely changed, obviously. Um, but before that, I've also spent a couple of years in China. So I've been there for about five years in total. I see. So here is, I'm only going to ask one of my uh, bilateral uh, uh, okay. Dutch-Chinese questions. Uh, uh, but I have a bunch. Of, we, we have, Make it a good one. No, so my question is, um, uh, given that 
a huge amount of uh, uh, any EU member states relationship with China is actually negotiated through the EU. Yeah. Um, what is the what is the role that the Netherlands embassy functionally plays in China beyond, you know, service to Dutch citizens who are present? Are there bilateral Dutch Chinese issues that are are dealt with in the competence of the Netherlands as a member state rather than through Brussels? Uh, we have no sense of this in the United States. Like, what does the embassy of the Netherlands in, in yeah. Beijing actually do? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, in so was that a good enough one? Yeah, that's a good enough one. Okay, also, just I, I need to uh, say that I was not in the economic department, which is uh, how I'm going to answer this question <laughs> first and foremost. So, if I'm by the way, Laura has had no idea she was going to be on this <laughs> yeah. show. Um, she was just sitting in. Uh, she showed up to see her friend Sophia. Uh, <laughs> like she, she really is sandbagged with the appearance on In Low of Fun, which is a metaphor for the show itself. Uh, anyway, sorry, I interrupted yeah. you. Uh, so, I mean, mainly everything that has to do with trade relations and uh, market access will be done on the EU level. Um, we've well, the European uh, Commission, as well as the Chinese government, had tried to sign the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, which unfortunately got stalled last year because of mutual sanctions. Um, so that is something that is less discussed uh, on a bilateral level, obviously. Um, political issues um, are mostly not always the good stuff. Um, I mean, if we look at the individual European countries and how they interact with the Chinese government, a lot of it has to do with things that are going wrong. Uh, so uh, citizens being detained, um, for example, um, which is when you will have direct contact. Uh, in other things, um, a lot of it evolves around uh, organizing high-level talks, because that is the thing where you will actually have something to discuss and maybe to get something to work or make some progress. So for example, for me, a lot of the time was just spending, you know, contact, I, me being an underling and having contact with the underlings at the Chinese uh, ministry, trying to arrange conversations for people higher up. Yeah. Gotcha, that's super interesting and not what I was expecting. <laughs> um, uh, so, all right. Um, Kate, do you have more or should we go to audience questions? Oh no, I have like a ton more questions. All right. I want Let's to know. Go. Yeah. I like if I Mike, if I if you're letting me loose on this kind of I just kind of I'm <clears throat> I want to kind of go back to the to the uh I find it I find like I mean I find the the long period of being away for two and a half years, specifically during COVID. Um, to be just absolutely anthropologically fascinating. Um, you are like, I don't know, where, where are you originally from? Or like, where did, were you raised, uh, Sophia? I'm an East Coaster, born in Queens, okay. raised in the area, yeah. Okay. And I lived in D.C. last, uh, I moved to Hong Kong in 2012, but I lived in D.C. for almost four years before I moved to East Asia. So I've been abroad for 10 years now. Yeah. Yeah, Time so flies. like... Yeah, but you've come back for visits, I'm assuming. But it's very different to come back for, from a visit after.
after two and a half years in which there was an entire global pandemic, which obviously none of us have kind of lived through before. And I'm just really curious, is it possible to parse what things are different because of COVID and what things are different because things are like things move on and things change and technology updates like what how how are you kind of walking through the world right now in dc and how does it feel to you are you overwhelmed is it kind of nostalgic is it both like what does it kind of feel like definitely a lot of it's nostalgic i mean i i went to <laughs> i was just eating all my old favorite foods you know like uh american junk food brands i like um things like that so it's been nice to sort of reinsert in that way um there have been a few instances I've noticed, uh, yeah, I flew through um, Hong Kong and then LA. So I had this layover in LAX and there were so many times I heard people tell customers in line at cafes and restaurants to put on a mask because technically the rules are inside the airport that you have to be wearing a mask. Um, and uh, so there are obviously differences, but I still, you know, it, it's really interesting. It's like everything's the same, but nothing's the same. I can tell that something has happened, but I also never saw America in the pandemic. I mean, I saw what was in the news you know, I've seen the changes politically that have happened, the Capitol Hill insurrection, I mean, Black Lives Matter. So much has happened in my own country these last few years, and I've only only known about it from afar. And everything kind of still feels the same, but I know it's not the same. It's only been a few days. I got back on um, Thursday. So what's today? Wednesday? It's been just under a week. And so I'm still really trying to take the temperature on all of this. You know, I haven't, uh, I guess I haven't been here long enough to really know but I know a lot has changed and I'm, I'm just kind of waiting to see in what ways it manifests and sort of um, spotlights itself to me. I mean, if there's anything anybody out here that's watching and listening thinks I should be asking or thinking about here, I'd be really grateful. In a way, I'm relearning about my own country. Isn't that strange? <laughs> no, that's exactly what it would it's strike really, me yeah. as. And it might, and then that's why I was kind of like, there has to be a mix of like re, re, reintegration plus nostalgia. And like, that must be a really strange psychological experience or emotional experience. And I was just kind of like curious, like kind of what that was feeling like. Um, I don't know. It's just like also very fascinating in terms of your expectations and just like your day to day um, kind of like how when you're in China, do you feel like watched by Chinese government? Do you feel as if there's like any as a, as a foreign journalist or do you feel kind of do you feel actually exception like an exception to being watched um, as a foreign journalist uh, versus, you know, and, you know, and now how do you feel kind of being back? Like, does that feel like you have don't have like the eyeballs on you that were on you before? Yeah, I, I think I said this to Ben last night, actually. There, in In China, there are security cameras everywhere. I mean, it's you can't not see them. And here I haven't noticed a single one. I mean, I know that they're there, but they're just not as visible. They're not, there aren't as many. Um, is it, is are... the difference the number or that they are not placed in order to be seen by way of intimidation, but are actually placed by way of, uh, uh, you know, coverage of a particular area? I, I guess it's the volume the number of cameras that you find in, in Beijing. I mean, you really can't go two feet without seeing one, being caught by one on camera. Um, they really are everywhere. And are those mostly government cameras or mostly uh, private security cameras? Primarily government cameras. Um, some people might put them out for their own, you know, outside their house or whatnot. Often that's just for show, just as a, like a deterrent. I mean, in that sense, that sort of crime is pretty rare in China, like petty, petty theft, petty crime. Uh, so personal safety is usually you're you're pretty okay uh, when you're in China on that front. 
some businesses might choose to put something out just as a deterrent, but it's, not, you know, usually the cameras that you're seeing are these massive, um, there are a lot of facial recognition cameras. And in Xinjiang, they uh, follow you, like, like <laughs> you, you, it like locks on. And then as you move, you see the camera kind of like track you. So they are everywhere. That's um, I, I, I sort of feel like cameras need to pay more attention to me. And so I think maybe I should. Says the man who gave up his MSNBC contract. <laughs> you know, dude, I, I, I sort of feel neglected now. And um, and so maybe I should go to Xinjiang where cameras will follow me wherever I go. All right. I want a, a serious, uh, I, I mean, I, you know, we've been, uh, I, I want to ask a serious question about this. You have spent time in Xinjiang over the last few years. Um, uh, there are some, like as somebody who has a, uh, I don't know, quasi paternal relationship with you. Uh, I <laughs> like really uh, had a lot of anxiety about some of the stuff that you were writing about what you were doing in Xinjiang. Uh, uh, tell us about it. Um, you're not there anymore. Uh, we had some conversations while you were there or while you were in China about the, the stories you were writing about Xinjiang. Uh, how bad is it? You know, it's, uh, it's been going on for so many years now. And I think as a, as a whole, I'm really proud of the press corps in China because every, every journalist who's been through China in these last five, six, seven years, everyone's done a bit of the puzzle. Everyone's chipped away um, to try to help the world understand what's going on. Um, but because of all the restrictions, I mean, it's, it's really hard to work there. The government actively tries to thwart reporting in Xinjiang in a way that they don't in other parts of the country. Uh, I mean, they still thwart journalism <laughs> as a whole in China, but in Xinjiang, it's really to a new level. Um, and so, and now with COVID, I mean, the area is almost entirely pretty much off limits due, due to public health. You know, Xinjiang borders different countries in Central Asia and also Russia. And China considers border areas to be more risky for COVID. They think that there's a risk of transmission, but the borders are sort of basically closed in that part of the country anyway. So it's been really effective in keeping outsiders out of the region. Um, and in the years that I've been there, I've seen this campaign change. You know, before uh, there were detention centers. I mean, they're still there, but now as more international attention has been focused on Xinjiang and China's human rights abuses, there's been a change in how China's trying to present this to the world. You know, they've been saying that this is necessary to rehabilitate would-be terrorists, that this is what the country needs, um, that these are training programs to help more, um, like, you know, people who are of a lower socioeconomic status to have a better life so that they can take better paying jobs in Xinjiang or elsewhere in the country. I mean, this is what they're telling the world, and that means that they've had to actually make a change in how things look. So Xinjiang now, at least the last time I went, which is almost a year ago now, unfortunately, it's been quite a while because of COVID and all sorts of reasons, um, it is actually less securitized than it used to be, at least from the outside, from the external th way of looking at things. If you're walking down the street now, it doesn't feel as militarized as it used to, but it's still there. It's just a little bit better hidden. You know, the security cameras in this one part of the old town in Kashgar uh, that I saw were painted like this sort of mustard yellow and brown to sort of camouflage it to the surroundings, but they're still there. Yeah, that'll keep it, that'll keep it secret. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're trying really hard to make this whole thing more palatable. Um, but it's not, uh, it's certainly not easy to 
work there, the government really goes all out to try to prevent journalists from seeing very much. So you have to be pretty nifty on your toes and creative and how you go about finding things. And one of the biggest challenges is making sure that anyone I come in contact with doesn't um, face any repercussions later. You know, I could go in to buy a bottle of water or try to talk to someone in a little bakery, but they could get into trouble because if the government thinks that they've agreed to do an interview with me, I mean, they, they, they could be sent to one of these camps. You know, it's, it's really tough. And that's an ethical question that every journalist working in China has to think about. This is the kind of thing that can happen also out of Xinjiang um, for different reasons, uh, just coming into contact with a foreign journalist. And so dealing with that is always, it's pretty heavy, right? I, I don't want anyone who in the course of my work gets negatively harmed or impacted because I'm trying to do a story. So trying to balance that, I think, has just been really difficult. I mean, personally and also professionally. Yeah. So for those of you who have not uh, uh, seen Sophia's uh, stuff from Xinjiang, uh, there was a I believe I can never remember which conversations you and I have had that are recorded. I believe there is a Lawfare podcast about them, uh, and uh, they are. Uh, uh, there's some pretty harrowing stuff in there, and uh, um, uh, and I urge you to check it out. Um, so, all right, we've got a bunch of really interesting audience questions. Greg R., uh, who I'm going to read, uh, says, sad not to be able to watch this live, but I watch, wanted to ask Sophia a question. Is there a difference between the generations in their reaction to the lockdowns uh, I will watch later to see if she has a sense of the generational reaction. It's mm, an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure that I've seen a, a that I've observed a generational difference in how people react to this. Actually, uh, I mean the the folks who are younger and a bit more savvy on their mobile phones can, in a way, cope better because they can order the things that they need uh, when there there are lockdowns. But it's also really difficult at times. I mean, we've seen this happen in Shanghai where you know, a city of 25 million people trying to keep 25 million people um, supplied with what they need every day, water, toilet paper, food, cleaning supplies, whatever it is that you need at home, pet food even. I mean, that's really difficult. Um, I'm not sure actually that I've seen a generational divide. I'd be curious actually to know what Laura thinks if she's still sitting in there. She's still <laughs> here, Laura, generational divide? Uh, I don't know if I can call it a generational divide, to be honest. What I do see is that there is more of a, depending on how wealthy you are or how much or how much you think you can get away with not obeying uh, the COVID restriction requirements or with how much impunity you live to, to your social status. Um, so, for example, in bigger cities, more wealthy people, people that are better connected, you can see that they try to evade those uh, restrictions more. Uh, for example, not scanning when they have to, or not taking everything too seriously, not listening to the requirements to stay at home, etc. Not when you were actually, you know, put in isolation, but more if there is a, they call it a jianyi, so a suggestion to stay home, which then a lot of people that are, um, well, responsible will take as a requirement. And also there's, again, then there's a difference between the big cities and the provinces, or not, sorry, not the provinces, but the big cities and more the, the villages. Um, villages are, are smaller, there is a lot more room or square meters per person, so it's easier to uh, keep your social distance and there will be less control as well because there will be less police, less cameras as we just discussed and other things to uh, keep an eye on how well you are adhering to the anti-epidemic requirements. So that is more a division that I see. 
I'm going to leave the camera on Laura because uh, almost all of these questions, uh, she has something more interesting to say than I do. Uh, the lines are vertical. The headband is horizontal, uh, but uh, she is not a green rectangle. She is Paula and she is a and we have shamed her into wearing and her glasses she is emotionally capable of lying as it turns out as you will have learned last week if you watched where's the lie paula uh the floor is yours girl um yeah so i was wondering why it seems like they've been using like the government has been using like some of the most least effective tools like the vaccination rates have been slow and low compared to like the united states for example and it seems weird, like in a year when you would have to have the most control to do something like we know that like the spread outside is very minimal. Why not, you know, give people the ability to go outside where, you know, that might not have a extreme impact and be able to keep that favorability high. Like it seems like the steps they're taking are actually not logical to their end goals, both as an authoritarian state and for a COVID policy. Yeah. On vaccinations, so the the last figure I saw was at 88% of the population, and that's that's a lot for a country of 1.4 billion. But the elderly are not as uh, well vaccinated. Uh, but there are only they're Chinese vaccinated vaccines. with a vaccine that doesn't work. Yeah, there are two. There are, there are Chinese vaccines, two two main ones that are given out, and uh, they're inactivated vaccines. They're not mRNA vaccines. Uh, China has not approved. Um, you know, Pfizer, the BioNTech, you know, they haven't approved um, AstraZeneca, they haven't approved non-Chinese vaccines in the country for use. Uh, it's really a political thing. If you read between the lines, no major Western nation has approved a Chinese vaccine. Chinese vaccines are on the WHO emergency approval list, so it is accepted if you're traveling through certain parts of the world now, but they haven't allowed that. And so these vaccines are just not as effective against new variants. I mean, even the ones that we have in the West, right, these mRNA vaccines maybe aren't so effective as the virus continues to mutate and develop. And so that's that's one thing to think about and consider. The other is that this issue with the quarantine and the isolation, in a way, this is all they know uh, in terms of how to deal with the virus. This is what they did from the start. It worked until now. They're going to stick with this playbook. And because it's a political big banner year politically, this is a really good time to keep more control over the population. I mean, that's the subtext to this. It is driven primarily in the name of public health, but also it's maybe a benefit to the government to be able to have, to track what people are doing in this moment. Uh, and so in, in, in that sense, Beijing, the government is not really gonna let up anytime soon, I think. Because yeah, can, can I, can I add to yeah. that? Please. Um, so another perspective that I would take into account is actually the position from the people that are implementing the laws and that are writing these COVID prevention laws and have to execute them. And that is that in general, uh, China uses a lot of experiments. So there will be this one uh, main order from the top, so no COVID in China, and then all the different provinces and all the, the different areas will find their own methods how to do that. Then they will feedback loop, loop that up to the center, will share their experiences, and then the best or most effective method that one of these provinces or one of these regions has found will then be implemented everywhere. 
So that means, and that is also the case with the COVID prevention measure. So the most strict, most of the time, will indeed be the most effective. So that is why they're learning from all the other places, uh, from all the other regions by those feedback loops. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that there is a, a very big potential of being punished as a local official uh, or the one that is supposed to be executing this uh, COVID prevention policy. And that creates a, well, endemic paranoia uh, at, at different levels because they don't, because those officials don't want to be responsible for a COVID outbreak. So they are just only upping the requirements to ensure not only the safety of the public, but also to ensure that they won't get fired or purged or worse. All right, I have been trying and trying to get, get James Heckel on screen to ask his question. I have failed utterly uh, and, and that reflects my value as a human being, I'm sure. So I'm gonna read it. Uh, James asks, are we getting new intro music for our favorite podcast soon? And Sophia, are you getting royalties? <laughs> um, actually, Ben did ask me for new music for the podcast a while ago, but I guess we never went, we never went out. Um, so yeah, I guess you, no. If there's new music, I guess somebody needs to ask Ben, and then Ben can ask me. So here, <laughs> no, I'm not getting royalties. It's been so I don't know what twelve years. <laughs> yeah, here's the question. <laughs> I should here, be getting paid, shouldn't I? <laughs> here's the answer on the royalties. Um, uh, uh, Many years ago, uh, <laughs> I invited Sophia over to uh, my parents' house. They have a very lovely uh, Steinway uh, uh, studio grand uh, from the 20s. And I, I asked her to play some stuff and I recorded it on a little, I mean, it was a freaking handheld. It wasn't even like a Zoom. Uh, and it was for the original Lawfare podcast. I believe it was Chopin. Um, uh, and um, I can't remember what the piece was. Um, it was the Barcarolle. It was like, yeah. yeah, it was it was lovely. It was really low tempo. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and the original Lawfare podcast, if you listen to episode one, was super gorilla. Um and so then by the time we kind of realized that we actually had an audience, and so it's like 100,000 people are downloading the Lawfare podcast per day now. And, uh, you know, by the time we realized we had an audience, uh, Sophia was in Hong Kong. And I just sent her a note that was like, have you recorded anything cool recently? And so she sent me a, a few things. One was the, the Schumann Carnival music that we use on the Lawfare podcast. And another was this, uh, I, I'm going to say something embarrassing, Fia, uh, uh -oh. was this uh, recording she made with a friend of hers uh, who plays the viola uh, uh, of, uh, actually, this piece that I, I completely adore, uh, Adios Naninos uh, uh, by, um, by uh, uh, Astor Piazzolla. Uh, the problem is that the violist was wildly out of tune. And, um, don't tell and, her that, please. What's that? Don't tell her that. Don't tell her that. Tell people that. that. Like, she was, like she was super out of tune. And so like I could only use the part that Sophia was playing. Um, and so that's why the Rational Security Podcast has none of the melody of Adios Naninas, only the uh the uh the cool 
so like the the part that the, that's that's famous which is you know da 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 isn't actually there because that's like the viola part um so okay are we going to do we have long talked about uh redoing uh both the music for rational security and the lawfare podcast i have told my crew that they are allowed to choose any music they want. The only rule is that uh, Sophia gets the option of playing it. Um, and because we can't change the credits, our music is performed by Sophia again. Uh, so Sophia gets the <laughs> option of playing it. She doesn't have to if she doesn't want to. And as to our royalties, Sophia gets the same royalties that everybody else gets for those podcasts, uh, exactly the same rate. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, Richard Wattenbarger, speaking of musicologists, we happen to have one right here. Uh, the floor is yours, sir. Hi. Uh, so, uh, so you were talking about, uh, are you touching on some of the restrictions that foreign journalists are under? So do you have the, have you had the opportunity to get out and uh, and hear um, orchestral concerts and music, you know, operatic performances. Um, is, is that a, or is that too much of a hassle, or, or you know, how does that work for you? You mean to do them myself, or to be able to attend? Uh, to, to actually hear, hear to attend to one. hear them. Yeah, so yeah. The... Is actually, a musicologist uh, and uh, and a professor thereof. Awesome. Yeah. Well, sort of. Yeah. Um, after the initial pandemic lockdown in 2020, a lot of China started to return somewhat to normal. There were activities, things were opening up. I mean, things shut down every time there are outbreaks again. Um, but life was pretty okay for a while. There were performances that were open, um, jazz bars that were open, the orchestra, uh, there were lots of orchestra concerts at the National Center for Performing Arts in Beijing, the Egg, as it's known, uh, because it's a building that looks like an egg. Uh, so yeah, so there were definitely opportunities for people to go listen to music. The one big difference, of course, is that foreign uh, music groups, like orchestras that would come, um, ballet troops, um, you know, theater groups that would normally come and, and actually give performances also and tour through China, they aren't coming anymore because it's so difficult to get in. I mean, basically nobody can come in on short-term visas at this point. You have to have a long-term visa to be in China, and usually that's tied to your work. Um, and and getting in is so complicated. It's there are stringent rules for traveling into China and then very long quarantines. I mean, I'm facing possibly up to five weeks of quarantine when I return to China, which I'm not looking forward to. So maybe we should do more in lieu of funds while I'm in quarantine those five weeks. Um, so it's it's hard to find if you want to do like live from quarantine on in lieu of funds. Oh man, uh, uh, for five weeks that would be so you could like. You're, you're muted, okay. When are you doing that again? If all goes according to plan, I'm flying back at the end of July back to China. So, and I say if all goes according to plan because flights get canceled all the time between the US and China. So I might still be here in August or September or October or December. I don't know, nobody knows, but I am booked on a flight. So that's the important thing, I guess. I'm, I'm gonna try to go back to China and hopefully things, things go okay. But if not, then we just do this again or we do this from quarantine. Super fun. Yeah, that would be well, maybe less fun for me at quarantine. It, well, would it be? <laughs> wait for it. In lieu of fun. 
<laughs> yeah, that's, that's how in little fun what started. Because we weren't allowed to have fun anymore. All right, Drew Rickett, uh, you are invisible as always, but the floor is yours. Yeah, so my question was about um, facial recognition cameras and have the, um, have the fashion items that were designed to defeat them caught on in China or are they unaware of the uh, existence of those items due to the Great Firewall? And for those who aren't aware of what facial recognition defeating clothing is, I will drop a link in the chat. It's just stuff that basically disrupts the normal kind of, it's like makeup that disrupts your face or it's like partially covers your face in some way that it like fucks with the facial recognition algorithm. I I've never seen anyone try to do that in China myself. Yeah. Uh, there there was a have company you, Um I have not ever seen somebody use that but I'm sure it, there is a rule against it. There's a law against it. So even if you would use it they will use some generic um criminal law uh, to say it's awesome. the order. Yeah, picking quarrels and provoking trouble. Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> there was a company uh, a young um, startup Chinese AI firm that was actually working a few years back already on gait recognition. So trying to figure out how different people walk so that you wouldn't even need facial recognition that you could, you know, maybe do a face off thing or whatever, change what you look like. But somehow this technology would still be able to see how you moved. Um, uh, the, the Ministry of Silly Walks yeah. joke just write themselves here. Yeah, holy crap, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, not amazing. I mean, like, I'm kind of like, I'm like regularly horrified by things that I hear about coming out of China and like that it exists. Like, I think generally speaking, but I'm trying, I try not to like be so like culturally inept and like understand that there's variation and everything else. But it's just like, it's kind of shocking for me to hear some of this sometimes. David H., you get the last question tonight, and then we have uh, a very important special surprise from Sophia. Okay. Well, this, this is a great question to be answered in one minute. Uh, do you have a view on how China perceives the Russian invasion of Ukraine, especially in terms of its interest in invading Taiwan, but also in terms of whether it thinks it might have chosen the wrong side? And then my, I have another quick question, which is, do you have a piano in China? Okay, I'll start with the last one. I do have a piano in China. Of course I do. I have um, I have two, I actually have three pianos in my apartment in Beijing. I have a, a baby grand kawaii that I got uh, when I first moved there. I have this great digital Roland that I bought in Hong Kong that I moved with me to Beijing. So I can play on the digital piano like early and late when my neighbors are trying to sleep and rest or their kids are trying to sleep and rest. I also have a baby toy piano. It's a uh, it's a Chinese knockoff of a Schoenhut baby um, toy piano. Uh, I can tweet about toy pianos later. That's for that's like a whole other separate Twitter thread. They're but, kind of uh, like baby cannons, but they're toy pianos. Yeah, they're kind of like baby cannons, but they're toy pianos. I just want to say, baby cannon is immediately behind uh, Lara right now. And uh, uh, hang on, if you uh, on, go on look up, the piano, so there's, there baby, go. There's, baby, there's cannon. baby cannon for you. Whoops. Um, there we go. It's right above Laura's head from what I can yeah. see. That's hilarious. Yeah. 
That's nice. Don't mind. Laura's uh, like, it's not going to shoot you. Don't worry, Laura. You're totally fine. All right. So both of you, the larger answer to David H.'s question. Okay. China on Russia and Ukraine. Um, So, wow. That's, you know, can we have more than a minute? (laughs) Yeah, we can go long. So... China and Russia are on the same side because on values, they align, right? They see, they think the West is in decline. They think that their style and, and mode of governing is the way things ought to be. So in that sense, they're they're buddy-buddy, Putin and Xi. But they're also frenemies. I mean, they're also in, in many ways competitors. They are definitely not allies in the Western sense. You know, they're not, they don't have each other's back no matter what. Uh, they have each other's back on areas where they agree. And then in areas where they disagree, they're happy to just kind of let that go and not even talk about it, you know, just put it in a, in a different room and not even think about it. Um, and uh, on what Putin's done for Beijing, this is a, a huge problem, right? They There's a big question as to what she knew or didn't know. Putin showed up in Beijing for the Olympics. They had a, a, a state visit. The two leaders met. There was the opening ceremony that Putin attended in Beijing with Xi. They, they list, issued a 5,000 word joint statement. Yeah, yeah. For my sins in life, I had to read. <laughs> and you could really Sorry, tell from that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was a hardship. Yeah, the readouts were long. And you could tell exactly which side asked for what language because it was like down to a T what each side would say. Oh, um, and, and also some of it really looked like it had been translated from Russian. Like, <laughs> and some of it really looked like it had not been, tra- it had been translated from something other than Russian. Yeah, for China, it's um, on the outset, they won't back down from their support of Russia. You know, they say that they haven't taken a side, but you can tell clearly from the comments that the government has made and also from the way the whole situation is portrayed in state media that they do, they're, they're going to back Russia, you know, and you have to think about this from China's perspective. If they were to move ever on Taiwan, would China want Russia to not come out and support or to, to actually go against them? Of course not. They want to make sure that they have someone in their corner if that day ever comes. Now, whether or not China invades Taiwan anytime soon, that's a calculation and decision for China to make on its own time. Uh, it's a wild card as to when China will think that this is appropriate. You know, Xi Jinping might think that this is the, the thing to do if he wants to shore up his legacy. Uh, he's talked about it for many years. It always comes up when he's making big, uh, important political speeches, this idea of uh, reunifying with Taiwan. So he's made it a priority. Whether or not he moves on it is another question, and whether or not he chooses to move on it quickly is definitely something that I think nobody can really give a, a proper answer on. Um, there's also a question of who, who's advising him and how clearly and transparently are they advising him. Is anyone... Does anyone dare to tell him how the world's really reacting? I mean, we, we don't know the answers to those questions. I mean, we can really speculate uh, on the little bits that we get from state media, and you can try to read between the lines or, as they say, read the tea leaves from what the foreign ministry says to the public. But that's all we've got. I mean, this is the world's most populous nation, the world's second largest economy, and all we've got is to read the tea leaves. I mean, that is a pretty scary place to be, I think. In terms of yeah, don't know how you live there. To be totally honest, like kind of no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying. (laughs) You know, that's what my mom says. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, don't know. I don't know. Like, I would be. I mean, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it. So, it's. um, Laura, your thoughts on what lessons China is taking from Ukraine? 
Well, I am a pacifist, so that sort of clouds my judgment in terms of predicting when other countries will invade each other. I so much do not want that to happen. The are not as lean, but that was perfect. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of comments on on China Taiwan. In terms of Russia China, well, I mean, I can say what I what I saw when the invasion started and the war broke out on on chinese social media and in chinese newspapers and sort of more like general political communication um and what you saw during that time and was that uh there were several narrative pushed so nato is the source of all evil um the us is the source of all evil if you are a fan of the united states don't ever go to the chinese internet because oh my god uh, <laughs> um you won't like your country afterwards or not like not see not like how it's being called uh and during the first few days of the war actually there was a lot of freedom of speech so possible you see that often on the chinese internet because they need to assess to what extent sort of the popular opinion will bend or where the popular opinion will bend and then afterwards what the official narrative is and then how they need to bend it in another way or more extreme in the same way um, during that time, you saw that online the comments were about 50-50 pro-Ukraine or pro-Russia, or but also a lot of things were mentioned that Russia did uh, how, how, how Russia did wrong by by China. So a lot of not everything is, is forgotten in that bilateral relationship. And then within a couple of days, saw that the censors were coming on and public opinion guidance started. So that means that particular comments are being pushed uh, that are from either fake accounts or paid accounts or bots or um, from public opinion leaders that are need to follow uh, the guidelines of what the official narrative is. And that it was getting more on those, on those points that I said before, so anti-NATO, anti-US, etc. Um, however, from what I got from it is that it's not necessarily the case that the Chinese government, or at least those foreign policy experts that are supposed to be responsible for this, are actually believing that narrative that is being pushed, but it's more that they're taking advantage of the moment to further erode confidence in the Western-led world as they see it. It's even very binary terms, so us against the West. I'm, I've never really seen it as the West being in European, but I've spent now five years in China and now it's always the foreigner with, with by which I mean everything not Chinese. So I've also been socialized uh, to so you, thinking you've in discovered binary. the West now. Yeah, I've discovered the West now. All right. I've been having this, sorry, I know we have to go, but I've been having this kind of, I've never understood how people say the East versus the West. Like, I'm just like, where are you standing? Like, I just don't understand. <laughs> like, this is a completely relative term. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, well, sorry. you know, just like okay, the Middle East is, you know, Israel, Egypt, and the Levant, I mean, I know that. But and like, the, that's, and the yeah. Midwest is Ohio and Michigan. It makes know, perfect but, sense. But um, that's because it's re referenced into something, but like this East-West type of notion, like, I think it's predisposed. Yeah, I don't know where it like it, it assumes <laughs> that you're coming from, but like not from the U.S. Basically, is my point. All right, so uh, I want to point out that 62% of you purport to not be disappointed that Sophia didn't wear a dog shirt, but <laughs> she has a surprise for you. Um, uh, there it is. She I has. Have, a I dog have it. Shirt. I do have it. Um, 
she has more dignity than to actually put it on. But uh, we'll fix that. Know, we're, 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 we're an authoritarian podcast. We're going to make you wear it. <laughs> yeah, drone. You are not wearing escape? your dog shirt, Fia. <laughs> Um, we can see we're gonna the leave it there. recognition that there's no dog shirt. <laughs> we're going to leave it there. Sophia, great to see you. I'm going to see you again in like 30 seconds. Uh, Lara, I will continuously see you the entire time. So <laughs> to act like we're saying goodbye or something. But we will be back on Friday. And I think Kate's actually going to be in Washington on Friday, right? I will maybe, I think I might be uh, where uh, Sophia is or where Laura is right now. Yeah, we're going to do in lieu of fun live together for the first time since, since like that day, since yeah. like that day in the beer garden. Well, uh, we flipped over the t picnic table by trying to sit on the same side. Yeah, that was bad. We, <laughs> And that'll be 46 hours and uh 51 minutes from now and until then kate uh we don't have fun anymore uh but we do have so many choices uh in terms of tomato sauce or like pasta or like what kind of cookies you want i mean i know they have this but like really just so like go nuts go nuts yeah go nuts Laundry detergent, like at least twelve. Like, <laughs> 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 <laughs>